This is the good, the Baz, and the ugly. I'm the Baz. Well, that no, I'm Baz. That sounds weird if I go around calling myself the Baz. Anyway, uh, look, this podcast is filled with uncensored interviews with experts in particular fields or real-life stories from people who have inspiring personal tales to tell. It covers various topics and life stories that I've really dug, you know what I mean? And I think you'll dig them too. Just so you know, this podcast is for grown-ups, or at least people over 18, as it may contain adult themes, sexual references, and strong language. Fuck yeah! You didn't need to curse. No, I just wanted to. Sheet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you're about to hear is true. Hold it now, wait, hold it. I know you're gonna dig this. I think the best thing for me to do is to introduce him. What the... What's his name? Baz Ashwami. It's not Baz Ashwami. It's Baz Ashmawi. Welcome, 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 welcome. It's the good, the Baz and the ugly episode 29. This week, I wanted, I, I came across this guy, right? I'm just going to get straight into it because I, I, firstly, I have to say this. This could be triggering for some people, right? The, this this interview this week because um, it's to do with mental health, um, uh, some violence in it, um, some abuse. Um, and it it's it's it can be slightly heavy that being said it's the most unbelievable story and there's a guy who i was begging mahi to try and get in touch with who's called robert Culker. now for those of you that don't know he's he's a a best-selling author of a book called hidden valley road give you a little bit of a backdrop to him and um, he's an american journalist he worked as a contributing editor uh, at the new york magazine um and a former projects and investigations reporter for bloomberg news and business week and um, he's the author of lost girls i don't know if you know that that's a new york times bestseller as well true crime book and was adapted back in 2020 for a big feature film on netflix but in 2020 his book hidden valley road was published and was selected for the revival on the oprah book club which can you get any higher than that you can actually you can because he was also selected on barack obama's top books of the year it is a mind-blowing account of the galvins who were a mid-century american family they had 12 children the oldest son donald jr was diagnosed with schizophrenia and then five more of his brothers were as well so then the galvins became kind of science's great hope in the quest to understand the disease that is um schizophrenia so Calker was originally approached by the two galvin sisters to write their family story this is that story it's it's an amazing listen but as i said it could be triggering for some people um we had a great chat this is that chat robert i'm so excited to chat to you man um listen when it comes to writing you're the man new york times bestsellers all over the place what, what what type of writer would you describe yourself as for someone who hasn't read um maybe your your previous hits I guess, you know, people call it narrative journalism or new journalism or long form nonfiction or just plain nonfiction, but it's all heavily reported stuff that that doesn't read like a textbook, hopefully, that doesn't re- read like we're making you re- eat your vegetables. Hopefully it's a story with suspense, but it's a true story that's been reported inside and out so that it feels almost like you're reading a novel. That's the goal anyway. Yeah, because it feels like you throw yourself Obviously, I know writers do, but very much so in a, in in nearly an investigative 
form you're throwing yourself into these books yeah right i mean there are there are big names from the past who who wrote incredible nonfiction books that that felt like novels and i think the stereotype is that they were mad geniuses who threw it all down on paper and were published i'm thinking about like tom wolf with the right stuff or hunter s thompson with fear and loathing in las vegas absolutely but the truth is if you look back at those books they're heavily reported. Like they, they, they really went back to school. Like they, they, it's amazing to read that the, the, all the research is sort of infused in there from underneath the uh, tip of the iceberg. And all you really see is the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. So that's really the goal here that, with the stuff I do. Funny, now I know people can't see you. I expected a much older gentleman. I expected someone, <laughs> a, a mirror effect of what I'm looking at, a bearded gray man. But you're not that. You've got quite a youthful glimmer about you, yeah. Well, I'm, uh, thank you. I'm 52, but- um, You're 52? I'm born 40. Oh basically. my God, yeah. I'm moving, I'm eating whatever Cocoa Pops you're eating. That's, you look great. <laughs> I like to say I was born 40. I'm pretty, I'm pretty, uh, pretty much a nerd. Um, <laughs> right. I don't remember really having much of a youth. So I, I've kind of have, um, Maybe maybe the writing feels that way because it's kind of serious-minded. I don't know. Okay, awesome. right. Well, I, I want to get straight into it. For anyone who hasn't read the book, and I know this is a huge que question, what is Hidden Valley Road about? This is um, an amazing story, the likes of which I hadn't heard of before, and that's after 25 years of being a, a journalist of you know, reporting on all kinds of things in New York City and around the world. Um, for New York Magazine and for Bloomberg Business Week and for the New York Times Magazine and other places. This is a family, uh, they started having children in the 1950s and they, in the, actually in the 1940s and they finished in the 1960s. Over 20 years, they had 12 children wow. and six of those children ended up diagnosed with schizophrenia. Um, they, their family had such a large instance of mental illness that they became studied by scientists. And for a while, they were research's greatest hope in understanding schizophrenia, which is really almost as mysterious today as it was, you know, 100 years ago when it first was given a name. So, so the book is about the family's trials and tribulations. It's about the well children as well as the sick children. It's about fathers and sons and mothers and daughters and um, the younger generation being traumatized and working through that trauma. And then it's also about the science of schizophrenia, the same way that a, a book like, like Michael Lewis's Moneyball or The Blind Side is about, you know, baseball or football, but it also is about some, some pretty technical information about those sports gets woven into them as well. I try to do the same with, uh, with brain research, with pharmacology, with the science of mental illness, with genetics. It, it all gets kind of woven in um, and um, the family story dominates. Did you have a personal connection with, with mental health or schizophrenia? Was that something that that um, empowered you to want to go and, uh, and, and tell this story? You know, I, I didn't, but what I do have is a, a desire to lift the veil on worlds that most of us may never be exposed to or may not understand. There are a lot of amazing nonfiction authors out there who do this. Um, David Grand did it with a with a the story of Percy Fawcett, the the lost city of Z, the the Amazon explorers. You know, none of us have been to the Amazon, but suddenly we're there in the middle of it by, because he reconstructed uh, that explorer's experiences. 
And um, funny enough, and I'd read a lot of books about the Amazon as a young boy in a summer I always wanted to travel to. And when I got there, <laughs> I couldn't fucking believe how fast I wanted to leave the place. It was just me being <laughs> bitten and chewed by by insects that shouldn't be allowed to exist. Um, it was it was yeah. terrifying. But but absolutely, <laughs> it's it's what it, it's what yes. uh, piques interest in people is what uh, what's written down for them. You know, right. these pa- pictures but, that are painted. But I, but but also, I I like to write about um about ordinary people who are going through something unpredictable and difficult and how to just to see how they make it through. Uh, I find those stories to be inspiring. I, I was a journalist who came of age when I was a little kid, you know, there was Watergate and Woodward and Bernstein and everyone I know who wanted to be a journalist wanted to bring down politicians or, or expose corruption or be a foreign correspondent or something like that. I, I never dialed into any of that. I wanted to write about everyday people who were going through something, something relatable and I started to really idolize work by journalists that wrote about people like this in places like the slums of Mumbai, like Catherine Boo did, did in uh, Behind the Beautiful Forevers. And so that's the sort of work I wanted to do. So along comes this family that's been through a colossal trauma. And that's something I know how to write about and sensitively, non-sensationalistically. We're not rubbernecking. It's not a freak show. These are real people. But then the other piece of it was mental illness. And that was completely strange to me. And I thought... Well, what a privilege. That's what journalists, that's why people go into journalism, to learn something new, to get put into a different world and understand it better. Which must be so difficult, right? Because when I think of mental health, right, um, the, 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 the worst stigma that any mental condition or disease that you can have is probably schizophrenia, right? Because because there's all these these myths about you know, um, multiple and split personalities, um, you know, having violent behavior, and um, you can't have a job, you know, it's caused by bad parenting. It, like, the list just goes on and on and on. And, and the more I thought about it, the more I, I realized how little I really, really know at all about schizophrenia and how terrifying it must be to have a condition that there is so much stigma about. Uh, my question, I suppose, to you is, how did this story come to you? Like, how did you... Uh, did you go look for the family? Did did someone come to you or, or, or how did it land with you? I have a very good friend who was also my editor at New York Magazine for 10 years. His name is John Gluck. And John went to high school, to secondary school with, um, with the youngest Galvin family member, with the youngest of the 12 children. They even dated to, uh, the two of them in high school. And they stayed friends in their 20s and 30s and 40s. Um, my friend John didn't know anything about her family during high school because the last thing she was going to be telling people in high school was about the troubles of her family. She wanted to run away from her family. But as the years went on, he got to understand the family better and he was in the media. And so one day, Lindsay uh, Galvin and her older sister, Margaret Galvin, came to John and said, we've been wondering about ways to have the world know about our family for decades now. We've thought about writing it ourselves. We've thought about memoirs about our own experiences. And we realize now that it's too big for one person inside the family to handle, that some of our brothers are 15, 16, 17, 18 years older than us, others are dead, that figuring out what happened to them is too much to ask. And now it's getting late in the day. Their, their mother, who is still, was still alive, was about 90. And uh, you know, time was running out. And they decided that better to have a professional journalist and objective outsider come and write about everyone. So they so were John they were seeking the f- they were seeking explanations, right? They were they were they were looking for you to help yeah. them as much as tell their story, right? 
they knew their family had been studied by science, but science hadn't really come back to them with a lot of information about what science had learned. <laughs> so they were hoping that uh, the, to get somebody who could do a little bit of digging in that department too. So yeah, and they wanted some closure. They wanted a little bit of a happy ending. When I, um, when I first got on the phone with them, I couldn't believe their story, just so listeners know. It's not just about schizophrenia. There's child abuse in this, in this story. It, 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 there's clergy abuse. It gets very, very difficult. But on the other hand, the sisters were very, very happy to talk about it all. It didn't feel like pulling teeth. They, they felt like they had been through something significant and they felt they had an inspiring message for, for people. And so I was the one on the phone who was the most depressed, frankly, listening to it. They had been through it and decades had passed and they were ready to tell their story. The problem was I couldn't tell if anyone else in the family really would be interested in this. And as you just said, it's such a taboo, schizophrenia. We don't like to talk about it or don't like to think about it, even more than autism um, or bipolar illness or de depression or anxiety, which are still kind of difficult subjects. Schizophrenia is like a, let's not talk about it at all. And so I, I couldn't believe that the whole family was ready. So I took my time and spoke with everyone in the family to make sure that, that I wouldn't be starting a fire by trying to write about it. I, I didn't want to cause fights inside the family but because I was working on a book about it. So it took about a year for everyone to be comfortable and understand what, what this was going to be. And, um, and after that, it was, it was sensational, just an amazingly special opportunity to, to talk to everybody in a family about their memories. I imagine, I, I imagine for, for Lindsay, was it? I, I imagine for, for all of the family, there's, there's great healing in, in talking, isn't there? Like, you know, it's, it's, it's incredibly therapeutic if you've had this thing and it's in your family and you haven't really spoken about it outside, to speak to someone who's non-judgmental and just listening to you, it must, it, it must be very, uh, up, not uplifting, but um, would release a weight off you, you know? I do think so. There are six siblings in the family who are around now who are not severely mentally ill, they don't have schizophrenia and they live out in the world. And if you ran into any of them at the supermarket um, or out in, you know, on a, at a baseball game, they would seem like very pleasant people. You wouldn't think there was anything extraordinary about what they'd been through. But I think as you got to know them a little bit better, they, one thing they all share is a certain hypervigilance. Uh, they're a little kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. You know, they're very careful. But they're the ones who have been through um, a lot of uh, therapy and have really worked very, very hard to tackle their traumas head on. I'm talking about Margaret and Lindsay, the two sisters. They are, they are willing to talk about anything. I, I asked, no matter, for two and a half years, I asked them every question I could possibly think of. And at no point did they say, you know what, that's too difficult. I really don't want to talk about that. They answered every question. They've become... I guess you could call it radical transparency. They're ready to talk about absolutely everything that happened to them. Because you know and what, I was just amazing. I was thinking just as you said that, because it must be so like it's amazing that they got to that state, that state in their mind where they were just okay. The only way to do this is to fully commit to it. But from your point of view, because I know, I know, I will get to it. But I know that there's such dark elements to the story. Were you anxious or, or did you did you worry about how not to turn them into these kind of villainous characters or this horrible to tell this really quite a um, quite a sad, dark story? Were, were you worried about approaching the, the story? Thank you for asking that question, because it was it was a significant issue for me. I really do think like 
that our culture, uh, that Western culture tends to look at mentally ill people and kind of other them and turn them into something that's less than human. Absolutely. Sometimes it, it makes them into monsters like homicidal maniacs or like Norman Bates or Hannibal Lecter. And then other times it turns them into something, some special, special mystical being that has special insight into, um, into our society, into our world as an outsider that ought to offer us a fresh perspective and see the world with, with new eyes. And I think that the, at this point I've interviewed dozens, if not a hundred of professionals who deal with severely mentally ill people and, and none of them would say that, that the people they're treating would fit into either category. They are human beings who are impaired, who are, who are ill. Sometimes they have delusions or hallucinations and sometimes um, they have a catatonia and other times they, are they have a mania, but they all are people. And my big worry, as you said, was that I would get to work on this story and that I would write it like it was Invasion of the Body Snatchers, yeah. that, I, that I would retell the family story and it would be, and then one day Matt got sick too. And that's the last time we would ever see Matt again because he would go off to an institution and, and they wouldn't actually be people. And I thought, how am I going to get past this? I, I don't know what to do. And I took my first trip to Colorado, which is where the family is from, which is a, you know, four hour plane ride from where I am in Brooklyn. So I go out there and I land and one by one, I go to meet the three surviving mentally ill brothers and, and all worries went away immediately. I mean, the, these are people, they're human beings. They, they, are, they have disabilities. They are impaired, not just by their mental illness, but also by um, years and years of the medications to treat a mental illness, which have you know, big health effects over time. It, you know, it kind of hurts, makes you obese and hurts your heart. So they, they aren't um, fully functional, but they, are, they have personalities. And, they, and also their symptoms of schizophrenia are really different from one another, even though they're in the same family. Because I wanted them, to ask that, there's so many different types of schizophrenia. So did they all have the same type of schizophrenia or did it affect them differently or? There might be a little overlap, but everybody's very different. It's just not a cookie cutter condition. And this was one of the huge misconceptions I had. I mean, schizophrenia is not, a disease the same way that COVID-19 is a disease. You can't look at it in a test tube or in a blood sample and say, yep, that's schizophrenia. It, it's a classification of symptoms. It's a way of diagnosing people. And one day, decades from now, or maybe even sooner, the way that we are coming to understand the brain, we may realize that what we've been calling schizophrenia is actually 10 different discrete brain disorders that require 10 different types of treatment. But for now, we're calling it schizophrenia. And even in the same family, the symptoms are different. The manifestations are different. So Donald has certain delusions. He believes uh, he, he's sort of hyper-religious and talks about religion all the time and also believes that he was the offspring of an octopus. But he's very tranquil and very uh, serene about it and very nice to people and polite. And um, Matthew, on the other hand, is completely grouchy and irascible and, you know, he has his own personality. And, but he's also quite lovable and very grateful whenever anybody helps him. Um, and then his, de his delusions when they come in to play are completely different. He believes he controls the weather. There was a period where he believed he was Paul McCartney. And then Peter is completely different from the two of them. He's a natural performer. He plays music on the recorder all day long for everyone at his assisted living facility. He wants, he likes to dance. He, he, um, he is, uh, he's an extrovert and, and, and completely cheerful and his medical treatments have kind of hurt his memory. So he, 
he clings on to whatever childhood memories he has and tells those stories all the time. Wow. He's gregarious, I guess is what I'm saying. They're so, so they're, different. They're human beings. Yeah, they're different. They're just different people. And Were you able to interview every family member? Because it's such a big family. Yeah. Yes, it was astonishing. And and what I learned is uh, is what I probably knew all along as someone with a brother and sister of my own, which is that nobody grows up in the same family. Everyone has a different story they tell themselves about their family. So Richard, when I talked to him, he he idolized his parents and thought they were perfect. And uh, Michael, when I talked when I talked to him, he he said that half the family's problems were that the parents were too authoritative and too you know, top down in their parenting style and that they just made things worse. And John, who is one of the older ones, he he was surprised by a lot of what I was telling him because he got out early and moved away uh, and, and only came back every couple of years to go visit. Um, everybody had sort of different stories to tell. And I was, it became my job to sort of stitch those stories together like a quilt and, and come up with a, a coherent, narrative of the family that felt like you were reading any family saga in fiction, like The Corrections or East of Eden, you know, these, these big family stories where in part one, you meet the parents and they start a family. And in part two, the kids grow up and have to reevaluate everything that happened in part one. That to me as a writer, I was excited about. Did you get pushback from any of them? Did they, when they found out you were writing a book, that must have been, was that a bit of a shock to them or? No, they were happy. That all three of them in different ways. Peter, Peter likes to, would like to think his family is famous and and exciting, and so he was excited to talk to me, and um, and and Matt enjoyed the company. And actually, I actually wondered if Matt would remember me from visit to visit, but no, he did. He said, "Oh yes, good to see you again," and uh, and we would talk. And Donald, uh, Donald's the same to everyone. He's very tranquil, but the the but he but he would see, he would recognize me as well. I, I should point out to listeners that I wasn't reconstructing events based on what the mentally ill brothers were telling me about their memories because their memories aren't quite as reliable, but it's the other six, the, the six non-mentally ill siblings, their memories became better as a reporter because right? um, there'd just be no way to fact check. It must check. be amazing to listen to different people's perception of the same moment because i always have this i heard this phrase before with, with your children you know they say oh your fucking parents fuck you up you know they, your first memories yeah, are yeah, always yeah. bad ones but someone else said to me well you've got to think the father has a different memory to what the child has and somewhere in the middle is the truth of what actually <laughs> did happen you know so but it must be amazing to see to, to start to form the reality of, of of the situation. I feel like it's the part of the book that's most relatable. That that you know, I have a brother and I have a sister, and our memories of our family have some overlap. But there are things that we've been each been telling ourselves in our own homes for years that might, might we might find that we are contradicted if we shared those thoughts with the with each other. And this is what happens with the Galvins. The you know, that John, for instance, I don't want to pick on him. He's a wonderful guy, but he. He lives far away, so he'll come home every couple of years, and he'll be—it'll be like a, a cold water being splashed on his face because the family he's been thinking of for the past two years is not exactly the same set of people who are actually living there. And we all feel—we all are like that when we go to see family members we haven't seen. I have a brother who's halfway across the country, and I love him very much, and he loves me, but um, we don't see each other that much. And so sometimes on the phone, he'll say to me something like, 
oh yes, well, your son has always been blah, blah, blah. Or yes, well, mom was always like that. And I'll, and I'll, I want to throw it up on boxing gloves and say, you take that back. You know, how could you say that? And then I realized his perspective is so different from mine. And I just simply have, have not been contradicted for so long that I, that I feel threatened by what he's saying. And uh, this, these real moments, I think, are things that are different from extreme mental illness or, or child abuse or things that are too extreme. And they're the things that ground the book, I think. Yeah. Mimi, the mother, she, she must now, I don't, is she still alive or? Her health was failing as I was in the middle of working on the book and she did die. Um, she knew the book was coming and I did interview her a lot. And she, I think one reason why she agreed to participate after years and years of sort of living in the shadows and not having her family be known by people is that um, she felt as if some of the scientific advances that that could be rooted in the family's story um, were very validating to her. Because for many years, uh, you mentioned mother blaming early on. Yeah. For many years, she was, she was existing at a time when a lot of psychiatrists blamed mothers for causing schizophrenia in their children, the same way that people used to blame mothers for causing autism in their children. And so, so to hear from a few researchers who had worked with the family for decades that that studying the Galvin family had led in a very circuitous way to some advances that, that confirmed the genetic component of schizophrenia, to her, that was like, that was a major victory. You know, she was ready to, um, you know, to pop champagne and drop the mic on that one. She was excited because she thought, you see, you know, it's not, you know, I, I made mistakes, but this isn't my th fault. I did not cause it. That must be such a burden to, for people to be accusing you of something uh, and you knowing it's not true, but not knowing, you know, like there's that, uh, you'd always be second guessing yourself for so long. What was, the, what, just out of interest, what was the family's, um, uh, how did people in, the, in, the, in their town see them? before this and after the, after this, because it became a, this kind of freak show that they had five or six children with schizophrenia. And I know she, the parents were getting the blame, but how were they seen before that? Were they, how were they perceived? That was a, one of the first questions I asked the sisters in our first phone call. I said, you must have been famous in the neighborhood. The whole, every, all the neighbors must have been talking about you. And they said, well, maybe. And then in the, in the research I did and in the interviewing I did with neighbors, what I learned was that they were they were a very high profile family in Colorado Springs, Colorado, which is a small, pretty progressive suburban town in, in America. And um, they were perfectionists. And you could see from the cover of the book, all the little boys lined up on a staircase wearing matching suits. It was like the Von Trapp family. And they were musicians and they were talented and they were athletes and they were star athletes and they were hockey players and champion hockey players. They were they were outwardly perfect in every way. And when things started going wrong, they really spent many years trying to keep it secret. And they worked so hard to do it that there were people who really, even today, were surprised when the book came out. Wow. However, their, their, their closest neighbors knew. They knew because, you know, Donald would come home from the hospital and spend his days wandering around the neighborhood, just sort of walking up and down the street and proselytizing to people. You know, they, they knew because... The younger boys would get into mischief and the mischief seemed a little more dangerous and a little more extreme than what some boys were doing uh, elsewhere down in the neighborhood so it was an interesting mix there they, they always, people would always know something was up but they wouldn't be able to sort of talk about it head on and remember every family has their own drama and so in the years that i got to know 
the Galvins, they would tell me stories about other families on the street that were going through their own difficulties. And so it's possible that it's possible that they weren't the, uh, the headline yeah, at the time yeah, okay. <laughs> so in, a, in the neighborhood news. There was sort of scapegoats around that were taking the attention off them, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> in regards to, in regards to, because I know this is a family that has been studied for decades at this stage, right? So how did their story help researchers learn more about schizophrenia? Um, it's it's um, quite something because I think many of us like to think of science as um, very linear and, and, and it's all about progress and solving problems. You know, like, let's put a team on that and come back with a vaccine and make it happen tomorrow, please. And, and we, we would like to believe that's the case, but um, most of the time it, it's about factions warring against one another and schools of thought dominating that turn out not to be true years later and new technologies coming online that suddenly allow us to see things that we never saw before. And then over-dependence on, on those technologies. You know, Not everything can be seen in an MRI, but if all you have is an MRI, then you become dependent on it and you don't see the big picture. Everybody is um, debating until finally some common understandings come to pass. And that's what happened with the Galvins. Uh, in the 80s, there were, there were researchers who were convinced that studying families like the Galvins would be a way to find the genetic smoking gun, the gene that causes schizophrenia. And so they took blood samples and they interviewed them and they went to work. And um, that started a saga of two different research teams, both of which had huge failures and reversals over many decades. But, but the, the long story short of both of them is that by 2015 and 2016, one team had come up with a strategy for reinforcing brain health that could start uh, in utero, a supplement, uh, a nutritional supplement that mothers could take that could help uh, children's brains be more resilient and not develop mental illnesses. That, that's a huge advance that started with an understanding of the Galvin family. And then the other team found an actual, actual genetic mutation, an actual genetic variant in the Galvin family's DNA that they think is a most likely the, the main player in what happened to that generation. And, uh, and everything about that particular mutation speaks to a certain part of brain function that, that we can concentrate on now and hopefully um, find ways to reinforce um, functionality in that part of the brain. So in other words, it, it's, almost like, it's almost like we've been searching under the car for our car keys that have dropped in a dark garage and you're, you're, you're rifling around with your hand under the car, but you can't see anything because it's so dark. The Galvins and other families like them are giving us a flashlight. So we can finally look under the car and see where the keys might be. Unbelievable, it's really quite and, and because when when you when you look at their story and then you look at the darker aspects of child abuse and and you know you you wonder oh is it is it trauma you know is it you know I know there's so many there's so much unknown about it but like automatically I thought oh it must be because of trauma you know it must be because of child abuse and all that. But, but there were genetic signs as well. There was, there was something um, obvious and, uh, genetically with them. You're getting at the big argument that's, that's been a part of researching schizophrenia and other big mental illnesses for more than a century now. There have been people like Sigmund Freud who say, well, these diseases were, are, are, are about trauma. They're about parents doing something to you or something else happening to you in childhood. And, and so you're developing these mental disorders as almost a defense mechanism to retreat into a world of your own. And then there are other people like Carl Jung and other, and then also 
brain scientists and neurobiologists who say that's ridiculous and and it has to be uh, nature. It has to be a genetic brain disorder that something you're born with, something that you might be able to pass along in your family. But but neither side has good satisfying proof. They're 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 for decades they really went to war with each other because um, the geneticists couldn't find the, a gene. Uh, to actually blame schizophrenia on, and the the Freudians um, were 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 coming up with ludicrous things with no proof at all, like blaming mothers for causing it. Which I mean, there's a there's a schizophrenia researcher who has a great saying. He says, "If bad parenting caused schizophrenia, we'd all be in a lot more trouble. Like it, it wouldn't it wouldn't be one percent of the population that had schizophrenia. It would be." 45% of the population. Absolutely. And, and so it just, it, it makes no sense whatsoever. So, so the, so what, what happened is that the Galvins and then also the human genome project and genetic research, they've helped break the tie a little bit. They've, they've shown that you can't cause schizophrenia in someone who isn't already genetically predisposed to have it. But that doesn't mean that if you're genetically predisposed to have it, that you're definitely going to have it. What you're inheriting is a risk. You're inheriting a vulnerability. And that's where the environment comes in. That's where people talk about things like head trauma or marijuana or child abuse or divorce or any other um, external trigger, you know, that could really, a trauma that could really uh, affect you if you are already vulnerable. And so it's not nature and it's not nurture, it's nature and nurture. Robert, I'm fascinated to know as a family, because so much tears families apart and Wow, this family just just so many layers and so much history and and it's so big. Did the family stay intact through this trauma or or no? No, they weren't able to be a unit. They are remarkably together, with with some exceptions. There, you know, one sister in the family has, you know, she was sort of airlifted out of the family early on when they were in their most biggest crisis. And there's an amazing story that she has of her own personal story is astonishing. And I, I try to scratch the surface of it in Hidden Valley Road. It's almost Dickensian, you know, that a wealthy benefactor comes in and scoops her up and takes her out of harm's way. And she spends her childhood living a life of privilege and feeling guilty about it and also feeling estranged from her family and abandoned by her family. And, and she, she has, um, in an, as an adult has come back into her family in many ways, but more recently has created some distance and decided to live her own life and start a new chapter of her life. So she's an exception. But then I, I just last week went to Colorado for the first time since the book was published. And I had lunch with uh, three of the brothers and one sister, um, all of whom, you know, are still devoted to one another and still uh, care for one another. And then, you know, others elsewhere are still in touch with one another. This was one of the big questions in my mind as I was getting started writing the book, not just how could all this happen to one family, but how could such a family stay together long enough to be studied by science at all? You would think that by the 1970s, the family would be cast to the winds and um, we would never know they existed. And yet Mimi, who was persecuted for so long and who was kind of a sitting duck because she was easy to criticize. For Mimi's the mom, yeah, yeah. Mimi's the mother yeah you know she in fact is also the hero she's the one who's keeping the family together and allowing allowing the rest of us and our society to benefit future generations to benefit from 
from the family by by staying together to be researched. Unbelievable, because you would just assume that they would fall and scatter like leaves, but but the fact that they did stay together like that, I just think that's amazing. Do you know what? I just think for for you to take on a story like this and handle it with the sensitivity and and care and due diligence and yet tell the story, I just think it's an incredible gift. Did uh, how do you think society can fight the stigma with mental health? Do you do you have a, do you have a, an opinion or do you have a feeling about it? This part of the story, I'm I'm rather optimistic about. I have to say, um, when when I was growing up and when you were growing up, there was probably in your family or or down the block, you know, other people you knew that people with depression or with autism or with anxiety or um, or even um, bipolar disorder, you know, called manic depression back in the '70s, right? Yeah, you know, that these, but these things weren't discussed. They were scandalous and and difficult, and better not to better not to talk about it. Better to smooth it over. But today, families that are facing those conditions, they talk about them. They talk about them all the time. It, there's been real progress. Um, they aren't as taboo as they used to be. I was I'm excited because I've been able to travel and talk about the book in recent weeks in a way I haven't been since the book came out. And so I was sitting at the airport alone at the gate and this guy comes up to me, he looks in his twenties and, um, and he sits very close to me and he's, he's much closer in a way of personal space than most people would be. And then he starts speaking softly in kind of a robotic voice, asking me if this is the right gate and if his ticket is right. And then he starts talking about the video games that he likes to play and how he's going to see his sister, and he and he doesn't really stop talking. And in my head, I think, well, it, I'm not a doctor, but it seems to me that he's probably autistic and how nice that he's going to see his family. And so I ask him about his video games and move on with my day. But 30 years ago, I would have been alarmed. I would have said, "Who? where is somebody who can help me with this person? Is he going to be violent? You know, why is he here? Why do I have to sit here and, and deal with this? Our, our, our understandings of severe mental illness are different now. And I think schizophrenia is next. I hope it's next because I, I do believe that it's been in the shadows for too long. There's so much I didn't understand about it when I got started. I really thought that this was the age of brain chemistry and that there were wonderful drugs for anxiety and depression, things that have changed the lives for so many people. And I really thought that finding the right drug for schizophrenia was all that people with schizophrenia needed to be functional. And what I learned is the drugs are very out of date. The same classes of drugs were used for the Galvins 40 years ago that are being used now. There has been no game-changing uh, medicine that makes life better for them. It's long overdue and hopefully will happen very soon, but but still it's it's tough. I think it's so tough because because of the stigma, you have these kind of opinions from people of, you know, oh, you know, someone with schizophrenia is scary or that they're going to be dangerous or, you know, um, it, 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 they should be scared with it. And 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 that is it's it's breaking down that stigma. But I think by by what you're doing, I'm in awe. Listen, it's. Hidden Valley Road, it's top of my list. I was on Amazon yesterday. I'm I'm going to chew it up. I can't wait. Um, I've only heard amazing things about it. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you, Robert. You're, you're a great guy. I'm a big fan now. I'm going to go through your backlog and go through everything. But it's just really, really amazing work. So, uh, so thanks so much for chatting to me.
Thank you. This is a thrill, a real pleasure speaking with you. Yeah, it was lovely. It was lovely. And listen, I know where you are. You never know if I get to New York in January. I'll come knocking. <laughs> I'll come knocking. I insist. <laughs> Take care, Robert. Listen, thanks <laughs> a million. There you go. Um, I, I didn't make it, obviously, to New York in January, but I may in March. Who knows? Who knows? Not me. Not me. <laughs> um, let me tell you this. Uh, uh, like I say, Robert Kolker, if you haven't read his books, Lost Girls is amazing. It was a New York Times bestseller and goes without saying Hidden Valley Road. You can be guaranteed at some stage it's going to be a Netflix uh, series. It's um, You can see it. You can, I can. I can actually it's see it. Amazing. It's amazing. Um, but listen, um, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Um, uh, if you do enjoy it, you can always subscribe. You can like. You can leave us a comment. You can track me down on my social media. Get me at uh, Bashmaui on uh, Instagram or at Baz Ashmaui on Twitter. Um, I, what can I say? Uh, I hope you have a great week. Good luck in the cup. <laughs>